0: got to wait till next week. Then we see what happens. I don't have a favorite team. You know, when I watch these clips, I think of life. You know, sometimes in life we're down by a couple touchdowns or, or we need a home run to, to do well in life. And, and have you ever come to a place in your life where you feel like you're so behind that it will take a miracle for you to come to a place that you will be satisfied with your life? I think we all go through that. Uh, There's some people in the Bible that we're going to look at and and learn from that they too went through a season that they felt they were done. But they were able to have the greatest comeback in in their entire life. And we can learn from them. We're going to learn from five different people. One man we're going to learn from is an innocent man who was betrayed by his own brothers. Who sold him into human trafficking and then was accused of a crime he didn't commit. Then he was thrown into prison but has a great comeback in being second in command of one of the most powerful nations at that time. We're also going to learn from a man who was a murderer, who tried to run away from his past, who later in life has a great comeback as a leader of a great nation. And then we'll learn from a man who was an adulterer and a conspirator to murder, who has a great comeback and is known later on in life as a man after God's own heart. Then we're going to learn from an innocent man who is executed at an early age, at the age of 33, who has the greatest comeback this world has ever seen, and no one has been able to duplicate. And the last is a group of people with differences, different backgrounds, ethnicities, disparate in opulence, with various upbringing and setbacks. Each of them are given the opportunity to have a great comeback. And we're going to learn and see how in their comeback, that they're going to be the world's greatest force for the hope of the world. I'm going to read in the book of Genesis. And I'm going to read from chapter 37, verse 1 through 11. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Genesis chapter 37. And this first person we're going to learn from is a man by the name of Joseph. And it says in in chapter 37, verse 1, it says, Now Jacob who was Joseph's father, dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Now remember, Jacob, he was wrestling with God in this one moment, and then God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Remember that? Jacob actually means heel holder. Heel. Like the heel of your foot. Heel holder. Because when he was born, he had a twin brother named Esau. And when his brother was born... Jacob came out after and grabbed Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob, which means heel holder. Well, God now changes his name from heel holder to God prevails. Because he wrestled with the angel of the Lord, and he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And so the angel touched the socket of his hip, got out of joint, and so he limped after that. But God changed his name to Israel so Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel, who is Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. He also made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers... They hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So you can see a little rivalry happening between siblings. And Joseph, being at an early age, trying to share his dream, is, is a little arrogant in sharing his dream. And sometimes we see that. Uh, this, you know, Joseph was 17 years old, so he's, he has these big dreams. He's saying, You know what? I can live on my own. I can do this. I can I can pay my own bills. i just going to buy me a house. When I, when I leave this house, i just going to buy my own home. And as parents were saying, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to leave. I'm gonna, I can live on my own. And as parents were saying, go. And then, you know, two days later, they come home. They need help. But that's just, that's just where Joseph was at. He was at that age where he said, I, I can do all these things. I get them. I get them. And so now... He's telling his brothers these things, and, and then he dreamed still another dream, and told it to his brothers. He said, "Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon and the 11 stars bow down to me." So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, "What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your brother, your mother, shall your brothers, your mother and I, indeed come to bow down to the earth before you?" And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in his mind. Now, we all have dreams. Joseph shares his dreams, but at at an immature age, he shares his dreams, but also with some attitude attached to it. Well, his brothers are envious, so they decide, you know what? Let's just kill him. Let's Let's just do away with him. So they conspired and had this plot to kill him. And then to say to their dad, you know what, some wild animals took him. Some wild animals attacked him. So they're going to take his clothes and they took his clothes and put some blood on it. And they're going to say, here's, here's what happened. But Reuben, the oldest, had a heart for him. And he said, they, he said to them, you know what, why don't we just throw him in the pit? Because Reuben was thinking later on, I'll come back and then I'll rescue him. And so then they throw him in the pit. Where now they're eating and then they see a, a bunch of people passing by. And they were the Ishmaelites, part of their ancestry. And as they're passing by, they think, wait a minute, we can make money off of this. So they sell Joseph into slavery. The Ishmaelites take Joseph into Egypt, sells him to a a man by the name of Potiphar. Now Joseph is in Potiphar's house, and, and Potiphar's wife starts checking him out. Because the Bible says Joseph was a handsome man. And so now, his wife, Potiphar's wife, is trying to come on to him. And Joseph, being a man of character, is saying, No, I, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And she's like, Come on. Nobody going to know. And he says, No, 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 no. And he tries to pull away from her. Well, she gets embarrassed because of this, and then accuses him calls in the guards, they come in, take him away, throws him into prison. It's in prison that he meets the chief butler and the chief baker of Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh got angry at his chief butler and baker, so he threw him in prison, almost like a timeout. Well, they get a dream. Joseph hears their dream, interprets their dream. And Joseph, as time is going on, continuously stayed close to God. And God was with Joseph even through his prison time. So now, Pharaoh is now not angry anymore at his his chief butler and chief baker. So now he brings them back from prison. Pile time out, come back home, start cooking. And so he brings them out, but the chief butler was supposed to remember Joseph. When he gets out of prison, Joseph told him, he said, When you get out, remember, give good word for me. I did nothing wrong. Let Pharaoh know that I'm innocent. And... But the butler forgets about Joseph. A couple years go by, and, and Joseph has a dream. And Joseph said, Nobody can interpret this dream. And then the butler says, Wait a minute. I remember this guy, Joseph. Back in the day in prison, he used to tell me about these... I would tell him my dreams, he would interpret it. Maybe he can help So they bring Joseph out of prison, and then he interprets the dream that Pharaoh has. And Pharaoh says, here's my dream. And Joseph said, here's what your dream means. Seven years, you'll have plentiful. you have a great harvest. But then the next seven years, we'll have famine. And so Pharaoh's thinking, well, what am I going to do then? And Joseph gives him some advice, and Pharaoh says, you know what, Joseph? Since you have the plan for this, I'm going to set you in charge. I'm going to set you in charge over all of, all of the crops and the grain so you do with what you think needs to be done. So Joseph becomes second in command. And now he's overseeing all of this grain. Well now, because of the famine in the land, his family is now starving. So Jacob has to send his children. Remember now, Joseph still has his brothers. His 11 brothers. Well, Jacob, who is Israel, sends his children, except Benjamin, because he's the youngest, sends his children to Egypt to get grain. Now, this is about 14 years later that this has taken place. And now Joseph, 14 years later, is in this position. Here comes his brothers to get grain. And Joseph sees them. Can you imagine what Joseph was going through? So his brothers come... And they bow down to Joseph. Joseph's dream is coming to realization, but not the way he thought. It was different. And so he tells his, his brothers, and they don't know it's him. They don't recognize him. So he tells them, hey, do you have family? Where are you from? So they say where they're from, where their family is from. And he says, hey, I'm not going to give you anything more until you go get your younger brother. And they had these, this little uh, miscommunication going on and all of these other things that are happening. And, and so they go and get their brother. Well, when they come back, now Joseph reveals himself to them. When he reveals himself to him, to, to his brothers, now they're afraid for their life. And they're thinking, we're dead meat. There's no way that we can, we, we can survive this because he's going to remember everything that we did to him. He's going to remember so they said, let's conspire and say, Dad said that you, you cannot do anything to us. So that's what they did. You know what is interesting about Joseph's life is he could have at any time threw in the towel and called it quits. He could have said, I'm done with this. There's no possible way I can do this. These people are against me. My own family is against me. I'm in prison. I can't, I'm 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 being treated for a crime I didn't commit. He could have threw in the towel, but you know, you know what Joseph did, and and this is what we can learn from having a great comeback. Is Joseph didn't put his confidence in his situation, nor did he put his confidence in himself. He put his confidence in the Lord. That's where he put his confidence. See, I think many times we put our confidence in people, we put our confidence in our job, in our finances, in our position. We put our confidence in ourselves, that we can do this. Only, come, only to come to a point in our life where we say, I am not able to do this. See, when you put your confidence in the Lord, there is great reward. If you're taking notes, you can write in our first point today, and having a great comeback, to put my confidence in the Lord. That's how Joseph went from pain, pain, from pain to prison to power. He put his confidence in the Lord. So now Joseph is there with his brothers. And his brothers are saying, you know, th- I know this happened, but dad said... Now Joseph, 14 years later, you would hope he would learn something. What would you do if you were treated that way and then 14 years later... Those who did wrong to you came up to you, and you had the power and authority to do whatever you wanted to them. You could throw them in prison. You could make them slaves. You could do whatever you want to them. What would you do? What would you do? Watch the perspective of Joseph in having a great comeback. In Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And then he says this, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And here's the reason, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Isn't that interesting? Because of Joseph's confidence, and that was, it was in the Lord, it was the Lord that brought about this great reward. He could have done anything, but he chose to do it God's way. The book of Hebrews tells us, Therefore, do not, throw, do not cast away your confidence, which has what? Great reward. Don't throw it away. Don't throw in the towel. Keep your confidence in the Lord. That's where we'll have the best comeback, the greatest comeback. It's, it's, it's when we put our confidence in the Lord, not in ourselves. Where's your confidence? What have you been putting your confidence in? Has it been in the Lord or in other things? See, there's going to be many things that distract us. Many things that will take us away from having confidence in the Lord. We'll think it's us, but it's not. It's, it's the Lord. If you think it's you, you only go so far until you recognize that it cannot be us. That there must be something greater. Because we're going to have distractions. Distractions will pull at us what do you do with distractions how do you minimize that how do you how do you have a great comeback when you have so many distractions especially when you're trying to put your confidence in the lord see he was he was able to do the things needed to be done to get to the place where he needed to be and many of us sometimes we're not willing to do what we've never done before to get to a place where we've never been but Joseph was willing to put his confidence in the Lord. He minimized his distractions. In, in, in other words, Joseph continuously put the distractions on the side and then, and then focused on the Lord. And, and number two, we can write this in for some application. To turn away from distractions. But not just turn away from distractions, turn to the Lord. Sometimes we put distractions on the side, but we never turn to the Lord. We reprioritize, we redo our life, we, we have a life mission... We make some major adjustments, but we never focus back on the Lord. We just focus on changing things around. And we we try to minimize distractions by putting things on the side. We say, you know what? For this season, no more TV. But we don't fill it up with anything else. So then we jump on the computer. Oh, you know what? For this season, no more computer. And you know what we do? Because we haven't filled it up with anything, we watch TV. And we go in circles. Some of us are trying to eat healthy, and you're trying to put away distractions. I don't know why you're buying chips and ice cream. like, I'm just trying to eat healthy, but it was on sale. (laughs) Or people come by, and they bring you food that you're trying to stay away from. And they bring it to work, and they bring it home. They, They visit you, and you say, no, 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 I'm not eating that. I'm staying away from sugars. Nope, don't want sugars. I don't want that. I, you know what? Just one small piece. Just one small piece. I'll just take a small piece. And that's what we do. Instead of minimizing the distractions and then and then focusing on the Lord, we take bits and pieces of our distractions. Instead of saying, I'm going to minimize what distracts me from the Lord so that I can turn to Him. We turn away from it. So Jacob's family is thriving in the land of Egypt. His family is... is, is multiplying and they're becoming stronger and stronger and and as they continue to become stronger and stronger Pharaoh dies and a new king is elected. So now they have this new king who does not know about Joseph and all the things that he was able to accomplish. Well this new Pharaoh sees that all the the Israelites of Jacob's family or his, his uh, descendants, they're all multiplying and they're, they're strong. And so he becomes fearful and he says, wait a minute, if they become numerous in size, what if they take us over? What if they rally up and then they take me over? So what he did was he made them work hard as slaves. And so they had to be the ones who made the brick. So he put them to work, but they were still strong and they continued to multiply. And because of Pharaoh's insecurities, he now puts double labor on them. And he says, you know what? You have to get your own straw. you got to get your own materials. We're not going to give it to you. you got to get them yourself, but you got to still produce the same amount of bricks. Have you ever felt like that at work? Your hours get cut, but you have to produce the same amount? Maybe, maybe now you're part-time, but you still have to do the same amount of work. Maybe your, your finances have been cut, but you still have bills to pay. It almost feels like you can never get ahead. That's what was happening with the Israelites. Well, because of this, Pharaoh says now to the Israelite midwives, he says to them, you know what? For every male that is born, destroy them. Every female, keep. Well, these midwives feared God, so they said, we're not going to do this. So they refused to kill the babies. Well, Pharaoh finds out and he calls the midwives in and he says, Hey, what, what are you guys doing? Are you supposed to kill the babies? And they say, well, you know, the, the midwives, I mean, the, the Hebrew, uh, the, the Israelite uh, children, the, the women, they're so strong. And by the time we get to them, they already given birth and the babies are strong. So we can't get to them in time. So Pharaoh says, okay, like I that. This is what I'm going to do. He commanded his army to go out there and whenever whenever there was a male baby born, they would have to throw them into the river. So now Pharaoh is saying, every Hebrew woman... By the way, he called them Hebrews because they were from a distant land. Hebrew just means from beyond the borders or from beyond. But he called the Israelites Hebrews. And he says, anytime they give birth, you go take the male child, throw him in the river and the females you keep so pharaoh is going through this well as they're going through this there's a baby that was born and because the mom wanted to keep her baby i mean what mom you know in this situation wouldn't try to think of a way to keep her child and and so she keeps her baby for 3 months and so now she has the baby and but she can't she can't hide him anymore so now she put some reeds together, put some some pitch inside and and makes a little basket, a little ark for the baby. Puts the baby inside and sends him down the river hoping that someone would, would catch the baby. Well, the baby goes down the river and as the baby heads down the river, Pharaoh's daughter actually picks up the baby and then takes him in As her own, but she says, wait a minute, the baby still needs to be nurtured. So she tells her servant girl to go find the mom and see if she can nurse him for a while. And when the baby is weaned, bring him back. And so they do that. Well, she names him Moses because he was brought out out of the water. That's what his name means. And so now Moses is growing up in the ways of the Egyptians, being a Hebrew. Well, as time goes on, now Moses is, is faced with, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm a Hebrew, but I grew up under Pharaoh, so I'm kind of like an Egyptian, but look at my people. They're being treated badly. So Moses has this idea. And he's going to rescue his people. And in Exodus, I'm going to read chapter 3. Moses is tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, who is the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So here is Moses He turns aside, and he's wondering, what is this? Now catch this, and it's in your notes, Exodus 3, 4 and 5. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. Now, I want us to recognize something. Moses was in all of this distraction. He had, he had so many things to think about. He didn't even know who he was going to identify with. Am I going to identify with my upbringing, who I am, with God and his people? What am I going to do? God was trying to catch his attention. And God caught his attention, but Moses chose to turn aside. Now, when, when God saw that Moses turned aside, and he was able to give him instruction... God is always speaking to us, always trying to get our attention. The question is, when am I going to turn aside and turn to God? Sometimes we think, well, I don't want to turn to God because He doesn't know what I'm going through. When you turn to God, He will see that and He will speak. He will help us along the way. What distracts you from having the greatest comeback in your marriage? What distracts you from turning aside to turn to God? What distracts you from having the greatest comeback in your, in your relationships or at your workplace, in the, in the environments where you're in, at school? See, the Lord sees when we turn aside. He makes notice of that. And He says, because you turned aside, and He calls us by name, He says, No longer do you walk this life alone. You are now standing on holy ground. In other words, the only way we can stand on holy ground is if God is there. And when God says, you're on holy ground, you're not alone. Moses wasn't alone. As time went on, the Israelites were led out of slavery. Remember Moses said, okay, God, you're calling me to, to lead the people out of slavery. He goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, Pharaoh, let the people go. We're going to worship God. And Pharaoh says, you got to be out of your mind you know how much work you guys produce for me? No way. He says, whatever. God's going to send some stuff happening. It wasn't like that. He said, God's going to do some things. And, it, and 12 plagues came to Egypt. Finally, Pharaoh says, okay, go. So now they're in the wilderness. They're, they're going into the desert. And they're rejoicing because they're no longer slaves in Egypt. They rejoice up until the point of the Red Sea. Now they get to the Red Sea, got the Red Sea, and then the Egyptian army coming for them. Now they're stuck again. And then they complain to Moses. They say, Moses, how are we going to do this? And God parts the Red Sea. What's your Red Sea right now? That you're stuck. You don't know which way to turn. That God says, I can can even part the Red Sea. Whatever you're, whatever you're going through, I can make it possible for you to pass right through. But you've got to turn aside from everything else, and you've got to put your trust and focus on me. Yeah, turn away from everything else, but turn toward me. And so they do that. They pass through. And then they go through the wilderness, and then they conquer all the different lands that God had promised to them through the, their father, Abraham. After some time, as the Israelites are becoming their own nation, now they want a king. They want their own king, just like all the other nations. So God gives them a king by the name, a man by the name of Saul. And so he says, Here's the king. Saul is your king. Well, Saul makes some life changing decisions and some life changing choices, and now Saul has been rejected as king. So now they choose another king. This king is the second king of Israel, and his name is David. David's most famous victory, remember, he defeated a warrior by the name of Goliath. Remember the sling and the stone? Many of you learned this in Sunday school. It was like a cool thing, you know, a sling and a stone, he hit Goliath in his head, Goliath fell. That's a hard thing to do. But David was that skilled. So now David becomes a man who is a warrior he's he's accomplishing some great battles and, and he's famous now. he becomes a king. Well he becomes famous, kind of gets to his head, gets a little too comfortable with who he is and, he, and then he lets his guard down. Once he let his guard down, distractions pull at him in at every direction. One day as he's on at his palace, because his palace was a little higher, he could see the rooftops of all the other homes. Then he saw this woman bathing. And instead of turning away, he inquires about this woman. And her name is Bathsheba. He didn't turn away. Some people say, hey, you can look, but just no touch. That's what we say. You can look, but no touch. No, no, no. Because if you keep looking, you are gonna eventually touch. <laughs> Billy Graham says it like this. You can't avoid the first look. But you sure can avoid the second one. So now David inquires about this woman Bathsheba. He brings her into the palace, knowing that she's married. And her husband is a man by the name of Uriah, is a part of David's army. David brings her in knowing that this is wrong. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. Now he has to figure out, how am I going to deal with this? Well, the way he deals with this is, he says, okay, this is what I got to do. He calls Uriah, her husband, from the battlefield. And he says, hey, Uriah, thank you for, you know, thank you for serving. Uh, why don't you take some time off, go home, be with your wife. And so David leaves it at that. He wakes up the next morning and Uriah is at his door. Fall, who, who, and he fell asleep right outside the king's doors with all the other servants and David calls him in he said did you not go home he says how can I go home when the men are in on the battlefield and here I am I'm not going to go home no in other words Uriah was loyal and he stayed loyal to the king well now David is thinking okay I got to figure this out what am I going to do so he invites Uriah again and he said, hey, let's, let's have a good time and let's, let's eat dinner. And so they ate dinner and they had some drinks. And David kept giving him drink after, drink after drink after drink after drink. And now he gets him drunk. Now David is causing someone else to stumble. And so now he says to him, hey, you should go home. Thinking "Yeah, boss, so he's going to go home. He might go home to his wife. But still he doesn't go home to his wife. He stays at the king's palace. So now David is stuck. Now, this scandal has spiraled down to the bare, just to rock bottom. And David says, here's what I'm going to do. And so he calls the commander. He says to Joab, and he actually gives the letter to Uriah. He says, give this letter to Joab. Joab reads the letter, and the letter says, take Uriah to the front of the battlefield at the worst possible point, the hottest part of the battle, and then retreat from him and leave him to die. So Joab, being under command, does exactly that. Word comes back to David. And David says, How's the report? How's things going in the battlefront? Well, this has happened. This has happened. Oh, and by the way, Uriah, the Hittite, has died in battle. Now he has to tell, this guy has to also tell Bathsheba. Bathsheba hears about this and of course mourns for her husband's death. Now David figures... She's no longer married. So now I can have her as wife. So now David takes her in as his wife. David is thinking, oh, everything's done. I got to take care of everything. Whew. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And he's feeling good about himself. Let me read 2 Samuel chapter 12. Here's a man by the name of Nathan. Was a prophet. Chapter twelve, verse one. Watch who sends Nathan to David. It says then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, "Where?" Uh, he says there were two men in one city. So he's giving David a story. It says there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. Which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David is feeling good about himself. He's thinking, wow, what a story. You know what, Nathan? That guy should be done with. Watch how sly Nathan is. He gives this story first to prepare for this. Then Nathan said to David, You... Are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And I imagine David's heartbeat. Now he's getting nervous. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your, into your keeping. And gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? And then he confronts David with the truth. He says, you have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel before the sun. You know what Nathan was saying to David? I'm here to love you in truth. I'm here to help you to have the greatest comeback. David, you have an opportunity right now to change. God will send you Nathans. The question is, what will we will do at that point? Are we going to change or are we going to stay the same? He'll send us parents as Nathans. A brother or a sister, a Christian brother or sister. Even a boss, a coworker. And they'll say, hey, what you're doing is not right. Oh, don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to help you with your greatest comeback. But we keep trying to pile lie upon lie and try to cover things up. And Nathan says, David, enough. You're ruining your entire life. Instead of justifying his actions. Like many of us do, here's what David did. Here's where his greatest comeback begins. And it's in your notes. 2 Samuel 12 Verse 13, so David said to Nathan, and let's read this together. Ready? Go. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. You know what he's saying? Because you confessed this, because you came clean, God took care of it. You shall live, David. You shall have a great life ahead. The sad thing is that David's child... Actually does die. But David still put his trust in the Lord. Not with his situations, but with his life. And you can write this in your last point. To trust the Lord with my life. Put aside all your distractions. Turn away from them. Turn to the Lord. But. Give Him your whole entire life. Trust Him with your life. Not just bits and pieces. Not just with my health or my finances or my family. My job or my situation that I'm dealing with. But with my entire life. See, trusting with the Lord with bits and pieces of our life is like trying to survive with bits and pieces of our vital organs. God is saying, I don't want bits and pieces of your life. I want your entire life. Why? Because I know what's best for you. I can give you the greatest comeback. As David is reigning as king, he begins to prepare to to build the uh, the temple of God. Remember, now they've been having this tent called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle that they would set up, and then God would descend, and then the priest would go in and meet with God, or Moses would meet with God, and then God would give him instructions. Then the priest would come out and then give the people instructions. David is saying, "I, you know, I, I live in a palace." Here God is dwelling in tents. I'm going to build him a temple. And God says, you're not going to build the temple because you're a man of war. Too much blood on your hands, David. I'm going to raise up someone else. In fact, your son, Solomon, is going to be the next king. So David and Bathsheba now have their second son. Their first son passed away, but their second son becomes king. And his name is Solomon. For some of us, sometimes a loss of a loved one, we think it's over. And God says, I can give you your greatest comeback. It's this next chapter of your life. So now Solomon has the building of the temple all prepared for him by his father David. Well, Solomon builds the temple and over time, because God so loved the world, he sends another king, one not of this world. He sends himself. And he says, it's time for the world to have a king that is not of this world, who will reign and rule for all of eternity, a king that no one can conquer, but a king that is not to destroy people, but to lift up the lives of people. And he comes in the form of a man entitled the Son of God. And we know him as Jesus Christ. Now Jesus Christ is doing a new thing because people were so far from the ways of God. They were doing the laws of God, forgetting about the love of God. And so God says, no longer am I going to live in man-made temples. I'm going to live in the only thing that can contain my spirit. The only thing that can contain my spirit is something that I make. And that's you and I. Human beings. He says, no longer is my spirit going to dwell in tents or in temples. I'm going to dwell in my people. I made this temple. This is a God-made temple. And so he says, I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to come in human form. But the only way I can dwell in your hearts is if your hearts are free of sin. A holy God cannot be with sin. And so he says, in order for that to happen, I must die for your sins. I must have a, a perfect sacrifice so your sins can be forgiven. And so God sends Jesus Christ. Jesus walks on this, on this earth, heals people. He, he feeds people. He loves people. And he draws people to God. Now the religious leaders are looking at this and they're saying, okay, we can't have this guy ruining our laws. You can't have this guy coming on the scene and taking away from us. So they were envious of him, envious of him, jealous of him. And so through different reasonings and, and conspiracy and, and lies and, and having false accusations against Jesus Christ, they found a way to execute him at 33 years old. Jesus, being on the cross, tells God, He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Just forgive them. Jesus didn't just live His life on this earth and then died. He gave His entire life To what he was supposed to give it to. And it was for the purposes of God. As he's on the cross. In Luke chapter 23 verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice. He said, Father. Into your hands. I commit my spirit. Having said this. He breathed his last. Jesus dies is buried in the tomb. And then we see the greatest comeback that that no one has been ever has been able to top. Jesus comes back to life. Now Jesus comes back to life. He overcomes the grave. He overcomes death. And then He meets up with His disciples. He sees His disciples and He tells His disciples, Go into all the world. Go into all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them everything that I have taught you, and don't forget this: I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus shares that with his disciples in Second Timothy one verse ten. It says, "And now he has made all of." This plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. God has given us a way back to Him to have the greatest comeback we have ever seen in our lives. But He says, you must go. You got to do something about it. But he also says this. It's not just for you. Go into the world. Let people know. And then be baptized in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's saying, fill your entire life up with me. Don't just give me bits and pieces. Give give me your entire life. For some of you, you've received Jesus Christ. And we're going to have water baptism today. We're doing what the Bible tells us to do in Matthew 28. We're going to do what God told us to do. And we're going to watch him show up. Some of you have never gotten baptized. But you receive Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you. Come down to water baptism at Coconut Island at 1.30. And be water baptized. You will not be the same. Some of you might be saying, Well, I, I received Christ like you know 15 years ago. I just never came around to be baptized. But everybody might think I am baptized. And if I go into the water, they're going to say, oh, How come you're getting baptized now? Put away all distractions. Turn aside from them. And then turn toward God, whatever He's speaking to you. And we're going to be at Coconut Island at 1.30. You know what the beautiful thing to this is? When Jesus came to this earth, He had a bigger vision. The fifth people we can learn from is called the church. That's you. And that's me. Jesus could see this taking place today. In fact, he brought one of his disciples named Peter. Kind of wanted to share with Peter this vision. And he says to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. He says, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. And he says, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know what he's saying to Peter? Peter, you're going to see some things happening in my life. And I already told you I'm going to die I know you guys don't understand everything right now, but upon my life, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build up the lives of people. I'm going to speak life into them. They're going to live in a world that speaks death to them, but I'm going to speak life to them. I'm going to give them hope. And Jesus speaks that to us today. He says, I give you hope and I speak life into you. And the gates of hell will not prevail against, not new hope, against you. You're the church. I love what Ray Lewis says. He's the uh, linebacker of the Ravens. and he, uh, Sorry. Uh, I know it's Super Bowl time, but, he, but there's one scripture that he's been saying throughout the season because he has gone through amazing things, and he's gone through some setbacks, but he has a great comeback too, and he's retiring this year, so there's a lot of story behind it. But he continuously quoted this scripture, and I know my son Jordan is going to be happy about this because this is his team. But he takes it out of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 54 verse 17. And, and I want to speak this to you this morning. Wherever you are in life. Wherever you are on the time clock. If you're down by whatever, bottom of the ninth. Maybe you're down by a goal or a touchdown. Whatever you may feel. You may be up ahead. Maybe you feel like the clock is ticking. Here's what Isaiah tells us from the Word of God. Let's read this together. Okay? Ready? Go. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Did you catch that? No weapon formed against you shall prosper. No weapon. Ray Lewis says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Shall prosper. No weapon. Does it way better than I do. But do you know what I sense? I sense the reality... That God knows everything that is taking place. The reason why I gave you the history of where we are today from way back then is because you're a part of God's story. He doesn't leave you behind. You're a part of His story. You are history in the making. And you will have the greatest comeback that you will ever see because of what God is going to do through your life. Trust Him turn aside from anything that distracts you and turn towards Him and you'll see the greatest comeback that you ever see in your life because your comeback is not in yourself. It's in Him. Amen. Amen. You bow your heads with me as we close in prayer. Lord, our our greatest comeback is only found in You. We've seen many things go on in our lives. Some of us are trying to pick ourselves up. We're, We're trying to move ahead. Some of us have come to a place where we've seen you do miraculous things in our lives, miracle after miracle. But you're calling us to be the church, that now we're in a place of, we're, we're restored, we, we have a, a great life. And you're calling us to do the same thing you did for us, to now do that for someone else. I know there's those that they're looking for something to help them to have this great comeback. But it's only in you. Because you, you live in us. You no longer live in man-made temples, but you live in us. And so Lord, we all need you today. There may be some of you this morning, you've never given Jesus your entire life. You maybe have given Him bits and pieces of your life. And today you're saying, I am giving Him my entire life. And if that's you, and you want to give Jesus your entire life, that you've never said yes to Him, You've never trusted Him with your entire life. You've never prayed to Him and asked Him to come into your heart. That we're going to do that right now. I'm going to give you the opportunity to to begin the greatest comeback that you will ever see. And if you want to say this prayer, could you just lift a hand with me today and we'll say the prayer together. If you want to receive Jesus, just lift a hand. Good. Anybody else? Good. Good. You're saying, I want to give Christ my life. Good. Good. You can hold your hands up. God sees your hand. Good. Yeah, many of us. You can put your hands down. Let's all say this prayer together. Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean and make me brand new. I want to be the person that you created me to be. And so I thank you for being my God. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. In Jesus' name I pray. How many of you, you're Christians, and with every head bowed and eyes closed, you're saying, boy, I've done some things that I want to have a great comeback, but I, I just don't know how. I, I, I know God, I, I pray, I try, but I'm, I'm just asking the Lord this morning to help me to put aside the distractions, to turn away from them and, and turn to Him. And, and I want to give Him my entire life. And I want to put my confidence in Him that I'm not going to throw away my confidence. It has great reward. And if, if that's you this morning, could you just respond and lift a hand and say, I, my confidence is in the Lord. Yeah, many of us. Lord, I pray for all of us who are raising our hands, many of us, that we will have the greatest comeback that we will ever see in our lives. Small ones and large ones, we just trust in you. You put your hands down. And so we pray these things as the church. In Jesus' name we pray. And we all said, Amen.